All right. Uh, so welcome, everyone. Uh, we're here tonight with uh, actually the Quad Shot crew. We're going to have to do a very special show tonight that's going to be a, a kind of a, a year-end wrap-up of our favorite studies from the last year or so. Uh, so we'll cover a lot of ground. Um, and because of that, I'd really like to just kind of dive in. So we'll start with some introductions and then we'll get into our favorite studies of the year. Um, so uh, I'm Matt Spraker. I'm a, a junior faculty at uh, Washington University in St. Louis, um, also one of the accelerators. We can just go around to, to the rest of them. Uh, hi there, I'm Anna Lauschus. I'm also one of the accelerators. I uh, recently graduated from the University of Michigan Radiation Oncology Program, and now I'm in uh, community practice here in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I'm Simil Parikh of the Accelerators, and I'm at Multicare in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, glad to be here. I'm Laura Dover with the Quadshot team, and I um, have a really heavy clinical practice at Memorial Sun Kettering. I'm Caleb Dulaney. I'm in community practice in Mississippi. I'm from the Quadshot team. Um, I did my residency training at UAB. And I'm Sam Markram, also on the Quad Shot team, and uh, I currently work at UAB in Birmingham, Alabama, and I'm excited to have the opportunity to be on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Sorry, I was muted. That was really, it's really exciting. You all have a podcast too, I think, right? So it's, it's sort of like running, it seems intermittently. And I obviously, I love everything you do. I've been following uh, for a while and I think it's really fun to get the updates of the studies with the little humor mixed in. I, I really, really like that. I think it's a great thing that y'all are doing. So, uh, yeah, so huge fan as well. Oh, sorry. Thanks. And vice versa. We will, um, enjoy the accelerator podcast for sure. It's, it's great to hear that. Um, well, let's, let's jump in because I think, I think we'll have quite a bit of time kind of talking about these. So we don't want to make this run too long. So, um, we have six studies that we're going to review. We each picked one. And these are studies that for the most part were published in or released in the last year with some, uh, stretching the rules a little bit for, for one of them. Um, and these are things that we all really liked for different reasons that, um, you know, represent exciting, exciting stuff for the field. So we're, we're going to kind of just go around. I think what we'll do is we'll have kind of a short summary, uh, why everybody picked it, why it's important to you. And then we can kind of talk about each one and we'll, and we'll go from there. Um, so why don't we start out? I believe, uh, Caleb, you are going to do the empire one trial. Uh, is that right? Yeah, I'll go ahead with that. So uh, Empire One, that was published earlier this year. Um, it was presented at Astro 2020. So I like this trial a lot because um, it takes a look at kind of the clinical application of flucyclovine PET scan for prostate cancer when you're uh, planning to do salvage radiation. So it included men with who basically met the criteria to start salvage radiation for prostate cancer. And then they had conventional imaging, which as we all know in practice, is not extremely helpful for biochemical recurrence. Uh, and they got randomized, though, to prior to treatment, have a flucyclovine PET scan. And that PET scan then guided the guided U.S. to how to what volumes to include. And so um, a couple of things that I thought were really good, because this comes up a lot in practice. You know, you get the and this is flucyclovine or Aximin is the, the PET scan. It's the more widely available advanced imaging for prostate cancer. Um, but, you know, a lot of times you get the scan and a fair amount of the time, particularly if you're, if you're starting with a low PSA, it, it, there's a chance it's going to be negative. And so what, what does that tell you or what does that help you do? Also, the question typically comes up, uh, obviously we want to do early salvage radiation, but if we 
if your PSA is lower, the, there's lower uh, positive or likelihood of having a positive finding on the PET scan. So those things are always kind of challenging in clinical practice. Anyway, the study just, it, it didn't really matter what your PSA was. And I thought it was important that the median PSA was only 0.3, so very low PSA. Um, so on randomization, um, let's see, you know, some of the patients had negative uh, PET scan. Those patients got treated to the prostate fossa only. Patients who had fossa uptake, they received treatment only to the fossa. Patients who had pelvic nodal disease, they received uh, nodal coverage. Although they did, uh, the the follow-on trial is going to look at boosting these nodes. They only received kind of a standard nodal dose. And then anybody with distant metastatic disease, of course, didn't get radiated. But the big takeaway was that there was just by doing the PET scan and then kind of tailoring your volumes to what you find in the PET scan, there was a significant improvement in event-free survival uh, just by doing the PET scan. So I thought that was a pretty pretty big deal, um, just showing how important advanced imaging is in this setting to help us uh, help improve the outcomes of salvage radiation. That was a really good summary, I think. Yeah, I, I I actually don't treat prostate, so I don't have a lot to say because I am probably the least educated on this topic of all the people on this call because uh, it's been a while since I've actually treated prostate. But I, you know, one of the things that makes it really, it's like, it's almost like an obvious finding, but I think that people, you know, if you think about it, like one of the biggest challenges is you don't, like you can't see, right? Like, so if you don't know what you're treating, I always felt like when you were giving adjuvant or salvage or prostate, you're kind of just blindly shooting, which is like, you know, something we almost never like to do in radiation. So I think it's nice to see these imaging tests coming, even though I don't, doesn't directly impact my practice. It's nice to see how just dramatically it's changed the way that people even approach treating prostate cancer, you know, in the post-prostatectomy or in the salvage setting. Um, it's, it seems like it's going to be a huge deal, uh, you know, over the next five to 10 years of how it'll change outcomes. Yeah. I'm interested to see, I guess it's going to be called Empire 2, which they're going to apparently, so about a third of patients had pelvic nodal mets that were not apparent on conventional imaging. Um, they only got, you know, I'm assuming like 50, 40 or 45 gray or something in this trial, but they're going to get boosted in the next trial. Um, you know, perhaps that's where this big difference is because only 5% of patients actually had uh, distant mets. Um, most has a 40% fossa uptake, 20% no uptake, and then 34% pelvic uptake. So could that could the event-free survival be even better by being able to really go after pelvic uh, pelvic nodal mets? If anybody who does treat these types of patients, do you, would you consider dose escalating the, the hot areas? Uh, that's what I currently do. Um, not, on, not on trial or anything, but yeah, so I try to boost pelvic lymph nodes, um, just, you know, if they're there, because a lot of times those nodes are fairly small, the ones that are occult on MRI or CT, but then that are positive on PET. They're typically pretty small and in pretty favorable locations for boost. Do you, how, how do you take those people for the boost? We, we I think people actually do that here as well. Like they do a simultaneous boost to the kind of involved areas on imaging. Yeah. And, yeah. I, I've kind of debated that with a lot of other people at other centers. Um, Sometimes, so if if the node's really not near anything, any critical structures, I mean, I'll try to take it to the same dose that I'm taking the prostate fossa to, 6840. Um, I do, so I have talked to some people who are doing, like, let's say there's a 
a, a spot in the fossa, maybe going at two gray per fraction so that you get, you know, into the seventies. So pretty much a definitive dose um, for gross disease in the, in the prostate fossa. So I, I usually try to go as high as possible respecting bowel tolerance. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm most familiar with as well. And it's definitely satisfying for the patients to be able to know, kind of to be able to see what we're treating to. Now we have to talk about your 6840 dosing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, where's that coming from? <laughs> Sorry. I didn't mean to derail us. I'm just, you know, trying to, to throw in some. some were you referring to like a hyperfractionation trial or? <laughs> no, I'm just referring to, um, you know, the, the recently published SAC 910 yeah. trial, which compared 64 to, to 70 gray with conventional fractionation with no, no improvement with escalation to 70, but increased yeah. uh, late GI toxicity in that yeah. arm. And so, you know, something we can all think about. Yeah. Our practice guess, at our institution my, hasn't changed either. <laughs> I, guess, I guess my comeback would be, I guess on that trial, if there was not, you didn't know for certain if there's gross disease, you know, is there a large focus of gross disease? Obviously, there's microscopic disease right. somewhere. I guess, could you argue that? Right. Or at least until tri- some studies come out to prove it. If there's something that I can see that I know is gross disease and that's, and I could dose escalate it, at least. 100%. Yeah. 100%. I mean, obviously, there's there's a lot of data that dose escalation for gross disease and prostate cancer is helpful from a biochemical control yeah. standpoint. So I, I I said that in jest and realized I've <laughs> derailed us. So Matt, bring yeah. us back. Well, no, no. I was, you know, so I think it's interesting, though, because I think it's it's a different thing, right? So I think if you're treating the prostate bat fossa, right, to in conventional fractionation, you have OARs there that are getting, you know, a, a fair bit of dose every single day to the same surface, right? The rectal surface gets the same dose or same location every day. I think it's a very different thing than treating to a very high dose to a small pelvic lymph node that's away from things where, you know, a bowel loop may pass by it on some of the fractions, but not all of them. Um, we actually, it's funny, uh, you know, again, I don't treat prostate at all. So I'm I, like, the, I really shouldn't be commenting on this, but you know, when I treat pelvic lymph nodes on other disease types, um, I often think about how high we should bring them. And it's usually ends up between, and this is for like SBRT, like when you have a small little lesion that you're SBRTing um, or simultaneous boosting in a bigger field. The question is, is like, do you, do you do more or less dose? And for me, it's always a, um, it's always a, a debate between how important local control is in that area versus like the risk of disseminated disease. And I think if you're talking about patients who have nodal failure, there is a you know, we know that some of them are going to end up metting out. And then you have to wonder if, if you could have gotten away with a lower dose versus a higher dose and a simultaneous boost for, for gross disease in a nodal, nodal field. So I don't know. It may never be tested, right? It's kind of a, you wouldn't really like trial that it's, I don't know, maybe they will. I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah. I guess, I guess this empire too might be an interesting, like if you compared the first and the second trial, because in this first trial, there was no boosting to the nodes. And so will there be a better control rate? with with the boost i'm not sure what dose they're going to boost to the i was just looking it up we can come back and answer it oh we, this is an on the fly thing so yeah 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 but yeah um, i think this is a great trial because it's one of those rare times where you can improve outcomes without escalating treatment right you're just getting a scan that maybe you couldn't have didn't know about before, didn't have available before. And we were talking about a little bit offline about how difficult it is to get certain advanced imaging, but 
it seems like polycyclovine's been um, pretty broadly accessible. So um, this seems to be something that's really going to change practice from that regard. You know, hopefully everyone can have access to that before salvage radiation. I, I like it because it's like, you know, radiation works in this scenario. We just, we, and it can work even better if we have better tools to tell us where, where to aim the radiation or how, how best to use it. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's like, it's funny. It's such a unique thing in across disease sites and oncology that you have such a excellent sensitive blood biomarker for recurrence. Right. But then until really yeah. now, it's like, you, you know, it's there. You just don't know where it is, which is not very helpful for radiation oncologists. So it's like, yeah. so it's, it's, that's kind of what I was saying is that, you know, even since I graduated, it's like, it's changed so much. And I think it's making, it makes such a huge difference compared to like kind of what we were dealing with even 10 years ago or five years ago. Um, I was trying to quickly look and see what dose they're going to on empire two, but it's not like super immediately apparent on the clinical trials.gov page. We'll definitely post it so people can go read it themselves. Should we move on to the next one just in the interest of time? So the next one, uh, I've already <laughs> forgotten who was going to do it. Oh, is it Sam, right? The flame trial, Anna, Anna, sorry. I apologize. Anna flame trial. No worries. Um, yeah, so I'm really excited to talk more about the FLAME trial and just a little bit of personal background. I actually did a year of research in uh, prostate multiparametric MRI at the NIH in med school. So it's actually really exciting for me to see a trial that was looking at delivering a, a focal boost um, to the dominant prostate lesions. And so um, the FLAME trial um, is a phase three trial, multi-center, randomized, controlled, uh, enrolled um, 571 patients, uh, either intermediate or high-risk prostate cancer, but primarily high-risk, and really looked at the question of whether dose escalation with a simultaneous integrated boost, whether this improves biochemical control in prostate cancer. And so um, there are two arms. Um, the standard arm received 77 gray in um, pretty standard fractionation to the entire prostate. Then the focal boost arm had an additional simultaneous integrated boost up to 95 gray. So fraction sizes of uh, up to 2.7 gray per fraction. So I think that uh, evens out to about 35 fractions um, to the lesions that were visible on multiparametric MRI. And I think a really important aspect of this trial is that the OAR constraints were prioritized over the focal boost dose. Um, and so um, primary endpoint looked at five-year biochemical disease-free survival. The median follow-up was pretty long, um, 72 months. And um, at, at five years, uh, the biochemical disease-free survival was 92% uh, in the boost arm compared to 85% in the standard arm. So um, small difference, but, uh, but was significant. Uh, and then uh, importantly, uh, their late GU and GI toxicity was very similar. So about 23% uh, GU toxicity in the standard arm, 12% GI toxicity versus 28% uh, in the, G, in the um, boost arm of GU toxicity and 13% GI toxicity. So overall, it really seemed that uh, delivering this focal boost uh, while respecting OAR constraints um, could improve uh, uh, biochemical DFS. So I think this is you know exciting for a few reasons. You know we have this, this more advanced uh, imaging now uh, with multiparametric MRI that's used pretty standardly for um, for staging patients uh, regardless. And I think it's great that we can 
you know, really identify the clinically significant um, areas and incorporate that into our radiation treatments. You know, um, it is just a biochemical disease-free survival benefit, but I think if we can do that uh, without, you know, necessarily worsening um, toxicity for patients, that uh, it's definitely, definitely worthwhile. Um, kind of some exciting future directions, I think, are incorporating this into more hypofractionated uh, techniques. And so the same group actually looked at um, uh, doing this uh, focal boost in the SBRT setting, uh, the HypoFlame trial, which is an ongoing um, phase two trial with encouraging um, primary endpoint results that have been reported so far, showing really no increase in, in acute toxicity. And I think there's actually another trial in Europe going on called the hypofocal SBRT trial that's actually combining information from multi-parametric MRI and um, PSMA PET scans, which are actually a lot more available in Europe. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to see kind of where this area of uh, more advanced uh, imaging takes us. I guess what I find um, interesting just in general is that we don't really ever seem to see um, a cap on effectiveness of dose escalation for prostate cancer. <laughs> We're always capped by safety. And, you know, that's, of course, a huge draw to brachytherapy um, techniques, et cetera. But it's exciting to hear that this could potentially be done without an increase in toxicity, because that's usually been the um, critique of, of the brachy boost. You know, is it worth the increased toxicity that we see? using it. So um, yeah, I think it's exciting. And especially if, if we can see it get down to something like five fractions. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really cool. I think that um, I, I agree with that totally. And I, and I, one thing that I would actually add, and I'm, I'm biased here because I'm a big proponent of spatially fractionated radiation is that this, the hypoflame trial, like you could sort of argue is kind of that sort of, it's, it's very, it's um, there's some really important differences, but it does kind of border on a, a spatially fractionated treatment. Um, the, the main difference, I think, is that the 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 differential between the lower dose region and the boost is actually not quite as steep as, as it is in the spatially fractionated treatments. But what's interesting is that if you believe the radiobiologists that work in this space, that they feel like that that gradient matters, right? And and a lot of people have kind of pointed that out about brachytherapy as well. Um, so it may have additional radiobiological effects beyond just like plain old dose fraction or hypo or sorry, dose escalation. Um, so I think that's really cool. One thing that I think is an important drawback though, is I think um, we are, uh, these are becoming increasingly difficult to deliver well, right? So I think if, if um, a lot of us are working in very big centers that do a ton of SBRT or big practices that do a ton of SBRT, and I think you can take it for granted that like that whole workflow from start to finish, including the physicists and QA and delivery, physician coverage, I think that stuff is, is relatively easy when you do a ton of it. Um, I've been at centers or observed treatments or seen plans from centers where they're kind of just getting started and there's a definite learning curve there. So one question I always have about these studies is are they going to be generalized well to smaller practices or practices with you know, remember there's practices that don't have physics on site every day, like that kind of stuff. And it's not that they can't do it. I just think that I, I hope that uh, we also disseminate in addition to the results. I hope we also disseminate like kind of a toolbox for these places to do this kind of stuff. Well, because as you said, there's no limit to dose escalation and trials for prostate except for side effects. But if you put that hotspot in the, in the urethra or in the wrong place, or if they're shifted a bit, um, it's, you know, you're going to end up with a lot of toxicity. So I think it's, it's something that's important to think about. 
Yeah, I would completely agree with that. So being in community practice, it can be really hard sometimes to to try to find out from these studies or even the publications, you know, how did they actually do it? And what are some of the some of the nuances of their treatment planning technique that don't really come through in the paper itself? Um, you know, and I spent a lot of time trying to dig up their protocols and, and those things. So, you know, when when those when these studies do really good papers, like I think I pulled up where Flame, you know, they had an entire paper uh, dedicated to their the treatment planning process. So that's very helpful. You know, if you want your the technique that you've done this entire study to to demonstrate, you know, if you want people to use it, you have to kind of get that get that method out there. Yeah, I, I feel like that's almost like a perfect segue to talk about the the challenges of these embargoes and, and various things that journals and, and some of the the limitations that that creates for you know widespread application. And you know, if our goal is we want to give the best cancer treatment to as many people as possible, then you know, those are real things to think about. To, don't get me started about the problems with academic publishing. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be here forever. Well, it, It'll just devolve into. It's almost, it's almost like uh, they're, they're considering it like intellectual property and uh, creating rather than a collaborative environment to benefit patients nationally. It's like, no, no, this is our way of doing it. This is the blank institution way of doing it. And they keep that stuff. Uh, very tight. I mean, I, I've emailed authors of uh, major studies that have been, frankly, like very unhelpful. And they're like, oh, I'm not going to send you that, but uh, wait for this. Yeah. And it's like, well, I have a patient that could be benefiting from this. Um, and I, I don't think it's in the spirit of uh, what we came here to do. And it's unfortunate. Um, yeah, I totally but, agree. I think, I think that they, it's, I still, I understand why people act that way. It's because it's the way that the incentives are set up, right? I mean, it's, you, you are incentivized to be an innovator. So if you like share, you could get, you know, quote scooped. Um, I do, I don't take that approach, but I get why people do it. I wish it would go away because I totally agree with you. Uh, is, is anyone doing this? Has anyone in the group uh, done this uh, flame approach on a patient? Yes. I have not. I have not. I would be interested in doing it. Um, it's kind of like, so it was with the timing of it, I guess, you know, it's getting published where, yeah, I don't know over overall, but you know, as, as you move more towards hypofractionation, you'd have to go, you know, if I want to copy this trial exactly, you'd have to go back to relatively conventionally fractionated treatment, which is not a big deal, but um, there's that factor. Um, Cause I don't, I don't know if anyone's trying to replicate this with the more moderate hypofractionation yet. That's really interesting. Oh, sorry. Go. I didn't mean. Well, that. so I don't treat prostate. So I need to definitely make this preface <laughs> before I uh, postulate what I'm going to, but um, you know, I know that the SIBs are done with five fraction prostate SBRT, you know, for intact prostate. So I'm wondering, you know, and I know there's kind of a move towards treating whole pelvis, five fraction, even if you're including the nodes, I'm wondering if you want to do whole pelvis, could you just then integrate the same SIB dose, you know, to 40 or whatever you would in five fractions yeah. to the nodule. And it would be virtually similar yeah. concept. I think in principle, it showed what, what the big takeaway for me from the trial was not only is it safe to go, well, it's safe to go to such a high dose, when you strictly respect your OAR constraints, because that was part of the trial. So they would undercover that boost PTV 
if you exceeded a dose constraint. So that that would apply to any kind of SIB technique, I guess, with the exception of the urethra. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they limited the urethra dose the on the study, but um, yeah, that would that would mean that with any fractionation scheme, you could arguably dose escalate a limited volume within the prostate. And as long as you can respect the dose constraints to the rectum and the bladder, you should you should have relatively low or normal toxicity. And remember, we give we give you know twenty five and five to people's whole pelvis, just open field. We do for for rectum, yeah. and they do fine. Like th- those people do, you know, it's they have uh, a, an exciting week the week after treatment with diarrhea, but like, but it resolves and they and they do fine in the long term. And we we prep them for it and we get them through it. And it's that part's like not not as big, not as big of a deal. So I think that ultimately, especially using like an IMRT approach, you, you'll be able to do a decent dose in five fractions. It's really interesting. I was actually going to, yeah. I was curious to hear what your answers were about why you don't do this. Cause it's like, you know, it's a phase, it's a phase two trial or sorry, phase three trial. And it's, you know, it's been out and the data is really good. So, but it's, I never thought about how like kind of the standard has become hypofractionation and then that puts you back in the long course. And I can imagine why people are not excited about that. Similar, you were going to say something, sorry. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that that exciting week you mentioned is uh, funny. It's uh, sheer terror the first few times you see it. You're like, what have I done here when you do a five times five on a pelvis? And they're getting that distension and diarrhea. <laughs> Just I, kind of funny. Sure. We, we ended up making a separate uh, paperwork for that uh, instructions for the patients, for those for those rectal patients. Just <laughs> yeah, we should... Uh, we should do some kind of a future thing where we like talk about, you know, knowledge sharing with how to manage this kind of stuff, because it's the same thing. We, um, I'm not, a, I'm not one of our rectal specialists, but I treat it up at our satellite location where I'm the medical director in our, and, and it's, I, I feel like I'm getting better at counseling, um, and, uh, and kind of managing, but it's something that at first was, was tough. Cause I felt like I was always underselling it. Um, and, and so, but you, do, you also do have people that do very well and have, have, relatively minimal toxicity compared to like the average. So I've had that as well. Anything else to say about this trial? Should we move on to the next one in terms of in, in, uh, in respect of time? Okay. So the next one is the vision trial. Right. I believe that's me. Uh, so the vision trial as it's oftentimes referred to is, uh, a study that was published in the new England journal actually this past year, um, looking at, uh, lutetium-177 PSMA radio ligand for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Um, authors point out that this is a challenging subgroup of prostate cancer patients, and although advances exist, um, we need to do better, and there's room for improvement. And um, also talk about how um, the PSMA or uh, prostate-specific membrane uh, antigen is highly expressed in this patient population. The metastatic castration resistant patients and that there's a decent amount of data suggesting that this is an independent negative predictive factor or negative prognostic factor for, for how these patients do. Um, and so it was a very interesting study. It was a, a phase three trial um, in this patient population. And it it's, it's important to understand this is a heavily pretreated group. Um, you know, in order to be included on this study, you, you had to have had uh, one or more um, androgen, uh, advanced androgen blockers, um, think abiraterone and enzalutamide, um, as well as you, you had to have uh, chemotherapy. Um, I think 
97% of patients had gotten docetaxel and a lot had had cabazitaxel. And so one or two chemotherapy agents in, in order to be even, even included, um, you, you had to have um, lesions that were detectable, at least one lesion that was detectable on standard imaging. So CT scan, MRI, bone scan, and they, they had to correlate with having uptake on a PSMA scan. And so if you had a lesion that didn't uptake PSMA, then you, you were excluded. Um, and, and the randomization here was to uh, standard of care treatment versus standard of care treatment uh, plus um, this lutetium-177 uh, PSMA radioligand, which was a beta particle uh, emitting uh, treatment. And so patients would get uh, randomized in a two-to-one fashion, um, and they would get 200 millicury um, every six weeks for four to six cycles. And um, then patients were followed over time, ended up having 831 patients that were included with a median follow-up of 21 months. And, you know, quite interestingly, um, the addition of um, the lutetium PSMA radioligand significantly improved um, imaging-based progression-free survival, as well as overall survival, which were the co-primary endpoints. So um, there was an improvement in the imaging-based progression-free survival from three to almost nine months. And there was an overall survival benefit um, taking the median from 11 to, to 15 months. Um, and so it was pretty significant. You know, there's a bunch of secondary endpoints they looked at, you know, skeletal events, uh, PSMA reduction rates, you know, various things. And, and they all tended to favor uh, the lutetium arm. Um, the toxicity was a little higher um, with uh, the addition of uh, lutetium-177, but um, you know, most of those were bone marrow, you know, some anemia, thrombocytopenia, lymphopenia type things. Um, the grade three event rate was, was still pretty low and um, tended to, um, patients tended to bounce back. And so, you know, I, I think it's, it's pretty interesting. One of the reasons I like this is, uh, you know, it's an overall survival benefit in a really heavily pretreated uh, patient population, which means something. Um, you know, if you look at the studies that, that established you know, taxing therapy, um, you know, they had about a three month median survival benefit. And this is a four month, you know, median survival benefit. If you look at uh, Zofigo, rating 223, it was about a three month median survival benefit. And so, you know, I think this is quite significant. Um, you know, I think, I think it's a big deal. It's in the New England Journal. Um, I saw on Twitter, which, you know, is the ultimate source of truth that we are at a 49 year low in radiation publications in the New England Journal, um, which means it has to be true. Uh, probably is. And that's low. Yeah, that's low. Because it wasn't really high like 20 <laughs> yeah, years ago. Ever. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, the fact that this this is in the New England Journal, um, I think is, is important. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's, it's exciting because it, it's kind of, it's along these lines of, you know, kind of expanding what we do regularly, what most radiation oncologists do regularly. And, you know, those sorts of things are interesting, whether you think about functional radio surgery for, you know, tremors or, you know, you know cardiac SBRT for arrhythmias or, you know, whatever it is, you know, it's interesting when you're kind of pushing and expanding the horizons. And so it's one of the reasons I liked it. So, so you've heard that our field is doomed. 
right? We have no future. <laughs> we have no future. So no, no, I, I actually, I think, I think you made a couple of good points that I wanted to kind of comment on. So part of why I love this trial is exactly what you said is it, is it, it represents to me a new avenue for like a new modality essentially for treating patients. I think it's gonna be very powerful. I, I really do. Like if I had to put money down in 10 or 15 years, there's going to be, I think there's gonna be a lot of these for different diseases. And I think that it's going to be um, uh, very powerful because I think, you know, it's, um, it, I, it seems like, I don't have data for this, but it does seem like more and more there's trials that show kind of small gains with systemic therapy. Um, and it's getting harder, right? We're getting better at treating like non-small cell, like seriously, the, everyone that works on that disease site, the, the gains that they have made in the last 10 years are just unbelievable. So super exciting there. But I think for, as we go forward, it's sort of like, you, you know, I, I personally am not someone who believes that like, you know, we're going to have drugs that are cure, like, you know, curing stage four patients on a regular basis, that kind of a thing. So to me, I, I actually feel like we see a lot of these patients where they're widely metastatic. They want you, I mean, I'm sure everyone on this call has been asked to like SBRT 15 lesions in somebody's body, right? And because they were, they're out of good options and they really are just looking around to try to find what they can do. And this really represents something that we just, no one has had, right? So I, I think it's really, um, it's really awesome. I should, I should, it just one more thing is that I'm, I'm kind of biased because we are uh, we, we really like Radio Farm at, at WashU and, and um, Jeff Mahalski, who's in charge of our clinics, is is a big proponent of this kind of stuff. So we do a lot of this and um, we do it in house, which I think is a really nice thing. And if I was going to go out and start my own practice, I'd try to see if I could do this um, in my department because I think it's a really uh, it's it's so, it's an area where we can develop a lot of the procedural aspects and the workflows. Um, and then that will pay off in the long term when there's more of this stuff available. And again, biased, but frankly, I think we are the best specialist uh, to do this. I, I think that it, it, if you give this to radiology, the problem is that these are not physicians that are dealing with caring for people with cancer, right? They do imaging, they do procedures, but they don't like run a clinic where they're doing consults and seeing patients and caring for them in the long term. So I think that we are better equipped to kind of do this new modality uh, compared to other fields that work with radiological materials. I completely agree. My feeling is it's really kind of ripe for the taking. Um, I think it is logistically quite difficult to start some kind of program like that, as you were kind of alluding to, you know, yeah, maybe at a, um, a big academic institution, but hey, you know, maybe that's where it starts for our field, but just to have, you know, a hot lab, as they call it, and have all the resources available. But what's exciting is I think it could very well, as Sam mentioned, this was an overall survival benefit among kind of the worst of the worst um, prostate patients. So, can we see this move to an earlier setting um, for patients, maybe not after they've had one or two or three chemo um, agents? And then the, the more of the volume improves, the easier the logistics would be. Yeah. So to me, that was kind of, um, I'd be curious to see, while I, I think a lot of people are very excited about this treatment, um, you know, some of the... It, as you mentioned before, with some of the other drugs, whereas, quote, only a three-month survival benefit, I mean, it's only a four-month median overall survival benefit in the vision trial. Um, I think there's a lot of excitement about the treatment, but I would still be interested to see how effective the drug is at long-term disease control, maybe in earlier stages of disease. You know, is it going to eradicate a lot of the metastatic prostate cancer, or is it just going to kind of 
you know, act like other systemic agents and, you know, delay some future progression. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, I think on some level, you know, you're going to have heterogeneity, you know, in, in the cancer that exists within a patient. And so, you know, if you had some microscopic disease that didn't express PSMA, you know, then you're, you're probably not going to be effective. And so, you know, maybe as a component of multimodality treatment, you know, this, this could be a good tool, but I think it's a good good question and a good point. Yeah. I I don't know about you guys. So in in practice, a trend I've seen seem to notice just since this publication has come out is that it's almost like people are just hitting, hitting pause on treating metastatic prostate cancer in the hopes that this, the lutetium is going to be available at some point, you know, FDA approved and available. And it's almost like, um, you know, I don't, I don't know that people are moving on to this other next lines of therapy that have historically been available as opposed to this waiting game that seems to be going on. I don't know if you guys have noticed any of that. I don't know enough about prostate cancer. To comment on <laughs> yeah. It seems like a bad idea. Well, I, I think it's yeah. definitely, it's, there's, there's geographic variation too. I mean, like there's places where, you know, I've worked in a few different locations and there's places where you don't, see them. You just don't get to them and they just get flogged with one systemic treatment after another. And there's other places like the current place I'm working right now where M1 prostate patients come to us immediately and we're part of the multidisciplinary team. And so I think as far as the broader part of radiation oncology, I mean, Sloan's doing it with their metastatic medicine program. I mean, we, we need to be there upfront. We can't be waiting till we get that referral down the road, especially in the community. I mean, we have to make a play that we're not like, we are an oncologist. We are, we're not, we're not technicians. We're not, um, you know, there for their beck and call, but we should be there at the beginning of diagnosis. And you do have to make an effort on yourself, you know, create these opportunities um, when, when studies like this come out and really present them, get out there. You can be busy enough and make your salary and do fine without adding on uh, new treatment techniques and modalities, or you can be a go-getter and have continued growth in your division. And I think that's, that's something that I think people in the past seem to be better at. And in the, in the more modern times, I think people are passive a little bit about this. I think it's time, you know, we, we, I talk a lot about how I I worry about the field, but um, we have so many advances, so many technologies and, we have a great opportunity if you're a go-getter to, to bring more patients and to do great things for these patients. It also represents, you know, I mean, these are made by, these are sort of made in a way by like pharma sort of, or at least companies that are set up a little bit more like pharma companies than, than device, than, you know, companies that are making Linux. And we talk, you know, to a common Twitter topic is like, the challenge that people face because, you know, pharma has invested so heavily in trials um, for, for drugs that we, you know, that sort of drug that, you know, people think that's one of the reasons that the, uh, that we saw the drop off of doing the journal to crisis levels of like the number of radiation trials that are in there. Um, so that this is a, an opportunity to, to kind of go after that too. So not only, like you said, to expand your practice in the community, but also if you are a researcher, like it's a, it's an area where you could totally hit it hard and try to get funding and try to develop new agents for, for patients. Um, you do this at any disease site. It does it's not special for prostate. You can really do it anywhere. 
So, so where does this fit with radium and the people who, so I guess the people who treat prostate on this call, not me, <laughs> uh, do, where does it fit with radium? Cause that was sort of confusing to me is like, so do you just, do you, uh, do you think it's like you institutions will pick one or the other and, and you just use one and, um, yeah. That was kind of the, I guess the comment I made earlier I was alluding to was just anecdotally have seen, it seems like a lot of people are wanting to put off moving to radium right now. Right and just wait. Let's wait for PSMA, the targeted therapy, to come out. And, I uh, see. Okay. okay. Yeah. So that's kind of. And I don't know how you know. Well, I mean, there's. I guess there's some practical things, right? So, like, you know, you have to have bone only disease to use. Right. Radium. Yeah. True. Yeah. And uh, so, right. you know, I mean, I think that's a key distinction. And then, you know, I think secondarily, um, you know, there's. Um, you have to have the PISMA positive yeah, scan, yeah. right? That's what that I, a lot sorry. of people can't exactly. get. Exactly. The PSMA, yes. the PSMA scan. Yeah, that's exactly. Sorry, I, I stopped thinking for a moment. Um, <laughs> I thought for you. I knew what I, you were saying. I appreciate that. We've been working together long enough that she's like, yeah, I know what you're thinking. But yeah, I mean, the a- access to PSMA is is a is an issue, right? And so if you if you can't get a PSMA scan in order to determine if the prostate cancer expresses PSMA in order to treat it with the Letitia labeled PSMA, then, then you're going to have issues. So, I mean, I think, I think that's another practical limitation. Okay. I guess I didn't know that they require a scan. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah although there, I think the majority, um, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Caleb. Well, I was just going to quickly say, I think the majority of people actually were PSMA positive. So I think most people that you send for it are probably going to, are going to be positive on the scan. Okay. All right. But you have to get the scan. Yeah. 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 Um, I was going to say one more practical thing. <laughs> is I'm reminded, I, this is burned in my brain because I think it's so kind of crazy. When thinking about the practicality of these treatments is that this is, you know, it is a completely different round. And part of that is that patients are carrying radioactive sources with them when they leave. And this is actually a really long half-life um, with Letitium. And there is this case report of a gentleman that passed away soon after his lutetium treatment, you know, a matter of days, and then was cremated and no one was notified. And there was significant exposure at the crematorium. And actually even a month later, a month after his cremation, the, um, the gentleman that did his cremation still had lutetium detectable in his urine which is just a crazy story, but it's something wow. that would absolutely happen. I mean, these patients yeah. are, so many patients are gonna die on treatment. Um, and it's not all to do with cremation, of course, but just we would need to do a lot of yeah. um, learning on how to educate sure. these patients and and who they should be around and who they should not be around and all that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, it being a beta emitter versus an alpha emitter, you know, just makes that worse, yeah. <laughs> you know, compared to Sofigo. So, yeah, it's a good point. Those are great points. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's keep moving. Cause we're, we're, I don't want to get too long here. So the next study is going to be, uh, the, so, so we're going to, I think we decided to call it the KROG 0806. So, uh, uh, go ahead and, and, and share that one with us. Sure. Um, I was taking this just, uh, just really briefly. So this was done by the Korean radiation oncology group, um, was a really, really practical trial and was presented um, this year, Astra, just a couple of months ago in abstract form. So we only have the abstract, but it was a, um, a fairly large randomized phase three trial. Um, nearly 750 women were included 
really broad eligibility, which is great. So virtually every woman that was recommended to receive regional nodal radiation after um, any type of breast surgery was randomized to plus or minus the inclusion of the internal mammary nodes. Um, so this is something that oftentimes we talk about theoretically a lot. How much does it really matter to include the internal mammary nodes in terms of their overall you know, disease outcomes, particularly given how um, that's really the component that drives so much of the toxicity with regional nodal radiation, both in terms of heart and lung dose. Um, so their primary endpoint was to um, see if they could detect a 10% improvement in disease-free survival. So 10% is quite ambitious. Um, disease-free survival also a somewhat ambitious endpoint in and of itself. It's definitely clinically meaningful, but um, you know, with women with advanced disease, we often think about them failing outside of just um, our local regional treatment as well. So definitely an ambitious endpoint, but one that I think makes sense when you think about the added toxicity of um, regional nodal irradiation. Um, what they found was there was not a significant benefit in disease-free survival between the arms, those that received um, inclusion of internal memory nodes and those who didn't. But when they kind of uh, stratified it by tumor location, that's when they were able to detect that 10% improvement in disease-free survival, specifically among women with central or medial tumors. So that means those you know, the more common scenario of laterally located tumors, even in the N2 and N3 setting, which actually, I believe the majority of these women actually had N2 or N3 disease, um, there was really a very, um, you know, very similar disease-free survival outcome, whether or not you included the internal mammary nodes. Um, so I think that, you know, how this is going to be applied in practice, I'm not sure this will routinely change recommendations at this time, but I do think it's extremely important to kind of have in the back of your mind, um, particularly if you have a scenario where you're treating a laterally located tumor and you're struggling to meet, um, you know, dosimetric constraints. I think we should probably lower our threshold for not intentionally including the internal mammary nodes. You know, I think this adds to some of the existing data that, you know, has historically been somewhat controversial, you know, with regard to, you know, how to, how to approach this situation, but it, it, it strengthens the idea of being selective, I think, um, particularly in patients that, you know, on this subgroup would, 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 uh, you know, um, you know, not benefited from the addition of the IMNs. And so I, I think that, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, moving forward. I think I like the trial a lot because of course, after MA20 and the EORTC study is obviously it's the trial everybody wanted to see, but then it kind of shows us what we, what we've all come to learn or expect. I would say, I guess from internal memory coverage, which is, you know, there, there is a small difference between uh, outcomes and it seems to be driven by location. And that's, I, I guess that's kind of the direction that, a lot of people have gone in terms of deciding when to cover the internal mammary nodes. If you do, you know, sometimes cover them, sometimes don't. And so um, I don't, I don't know that the trial makes a huge impact on daily practice, but it just gives us better information with, with which to, to use some of those selective 
um, selective factors with deciding when to do internal memory coverage. I don't know how many of you always cover IM nodes, never, sometimes. Yeah, uh, my practice typically um, always cover IMNs, but I think this trial brings up a really important point to look at, you know, medial central tumors. That's really where the there's the most benefit for patients. So I think um, definitely, and, and helps to have, you know, numbers to tell patients as well about kind of the expected benefit. Um, so I think, yeah, definitely this will add to my practice. Um, so, you know, and I think it, it does that, you know, some people might say, well, you know, there's the old French randomized trial that, you know, randomized patients to IMN versus no IMN coverage. And so how does this, how does this add to that existing 1000 patient randomized trial that's already out there? Um, you know, and I think that trial has been criticized by some because there's 2D planning, uh, 20, I think a quarter of the patients didn't have uh, lymph node positivity. And so, yeah, I think this is a, a more modern study. It helps us to, you know, understand that that there's maybe a, a subgroup that benefits and, and it does add to, to existing data. Yeah, and I, um, some people have pointed out, so the study included a lot of different nodal stages. So it wasn't just like one to three positive nodes. Um, I want to say a fair percentage of patients had N2 and even N3 disease um, that were included. And so... Um, with that also that you're not seeing a huge difference because those are typically scenarios when, where I think almost everyone would include IM nodes if you have, you know, much more extensive nodal disease as opposed to maybe one or two lymph nodes um, that might push you one way or another. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had a case today I was reviewing and I was treating lymph nodes and having a little bit of trouble, looked it up again, the tumor was lateral just cut out the IMCs and felt no problem yeah. doing it. And, yeah. um, I think you know, having particularly within one disease, which is, it seems like what we see most commonly, if even N2 and N3 don't see a benefit, then you should feel really comfortable with a lateral tumor within one disease omitting if there's any dissymmetric reason to. Yeah. 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 That's the thing. I mean, I, having been at Banner Health, I was associated with uh, MD Anderson and we had a very low threshold. Almost everybody got uh, MC's treated and you, you did it by hook or crook and even, you know, worst case scenario, the coverage was low, but you did try. And now it's just, I don't know. I, I I've never been sold on it, but this makes me much more comfortable with skipping it. And it's, I, I think you're right. Like how you mentioned, this is a practical trial. I love studies like this. It's just nuts and bolts. How do you practice medicine? How do you practice radiation? Yeah. Yeah. And I really think, you know, eligibility was virtually, you know, all comers, breast conservation, mastectomy, they did exclude neoadjuvant chemo, but I'm not sure how much that really matters, practically speaking, but, um, but yeah, it was a good trial. I guess it was to, I mean, that honestly is a pretty clean feature to the trial. So you don't have that whole question of whether, you know, the open question of, do you, do you dictate your, uh, adjuvant radiation based off the response? So that helped that that part be pretty clean there that, you know, everybody had, you know, no positive disease at surgery. Makes sense. Yeah, that's great. I think we will keep moving. Um, so uh, the next one is actually my study, um, the one that I picked. Um, so I picked uh, the the 
uh, I think we were calling it the SC24 study, the TROG study. So this is the stereotactic body radiotherapy versus conventional external beam radiotherapy in patients with painful spine metastases. It was a phase two, three trial from Canada and Australia. Um, I picked this study for a couple of reasons. So just, I guess, sorry, I guess I'll summarize it first. Um, it's basically where they took adult patients that had uh, spinal metastatic disease that were relatively well-functioning uh, patients, and they randomized them to receive either 24 grain, two fractions using SBRT or, or conventional uh, treatment of 20 grain, five fractions. Um, and, and they basically were looking at um, pain response as their primary uh, endpoint. And um, as typical out of this group, they were uh, very uh, sort of methodical in um, defining the, uh, the location, the, the, functional, uh, the, the functional status of the disease. So like the mechanical um, uh, component of the pain versus the kind of tumor component of the pain. Uh, so all of that was kind of built in there. Um, and then it was also open to multi-histology and the common histologies were the common ones on the study, but it did contain something like six or 7% of what they call other, which I'm hoping includes at least a couple of patients with sarcoma, which they usually fall into these kinds of studies. Um, and it was a really nice study. And, and part of why I've been watching this kind of space is really for two reasons. Um, one is, is that I'm um, a, a strong proponent of very short treatments uh, in patients with metastatic disease in uh, cancers that are aggressive. So I, I treat sarcoma, non-small cell lung cancer pr primarily or small cell. Um, and these are patients that once they have metastases um, in general, the survival is is kind of relatively short compared to, for example, breast or prostate is like a, is a good like kind of comparator there. Um, and, and there's actually another study this year can't remember the name, but this was a presentation at Astro that kind of is starting to highlight these differences, right? Where this was the one where they did SBRT. Actually, it was out of your institution, right? Or it was at a memorial at Astro where they randomized patients, but they looked at like breast versus non-small cell and they found a benefit for kind of like oligomat SBRT for non-small cell, but not for breast. So sorry for that deviation there, but basically this trial um, is looking at that. So they focused on a two fraction treatment and the, the primary endpoint of complete pain response uh, was positive there, where they found that to be beneficial compared to 20 and 5, um, and that was, that was really nice. Um, it's, it's interesting because we have the other RTOG study, which looked at SBRT versus conventional for spine, and that was a negative study. They looked at things a little differently there, and there's a, there's a lot of discussion written in some letters and things about the differences between the two trials and, and why the, the one study is positive and one's negative. But I think that anyone that does this, like I think that you can, it's not surprising that a dose escalated higher BD treatment offers you a better pain response than a lower kind of treatment. Um, part of why I think this is really important is I, um, there's something to be said, in my opinion, for minimizing the time off systemic therapy for these patients and, and getting these things done quickly. Um, so I, I really like to see these kind of two and one fraction type, type regimens. And, and more and more, I'm heading towards that. Um, I'm doing more and more one and two fraction and three fraction SBRT just kind of all over the body um, for, for patients uh, in different situations. And I think that it's something that I'm starting to really like. So that was my main um, thing for this trial. I think, you know, I think this group runs great trials. So, you know, there's, they've run other ones and that, that's good. But for me, it was really just the, the signal or the message that people can have really good outcomes, really nice pain response with treatments that are quick. So I, I sort of like that. I guess the one, so I do spine SBRT all the time. I think it's excellent treatment, but the one caveat I'll add to that is the treatment being quick is great from 
beam on to beam off of last treatment, but the planning time can be very arduous depending on what type of imaging you need for fusion. Um, you know, are you going to ask them to get a myelogram? And most people don't, but are you at least going to get some type of additional um, spine MRI, like a focal spine is what we often use if we don't get a my myelogram, which is a special scan that goes just through the treated vertebral body with thin slices, et cetera. Um, and that's where I think the big question in my mind clinically always comes is, should I do, you know, an eight gray times one tomorrow um, when someone's in a lot of pain? Or yes, I do think this is probably a superior treatment um, in many regards, but is it worth putting this patient through additional procedures? And then, you know, oftentimes I find it's at least two weeks, honestly, between consult and when they can start their treatment, which is a big difference. Um, so anyway, that's kind of clinically speaking where I always struggle daily, it seems like with making that decision. Yeah. And just to add to that, the other thing that makes it even harder is, is it's really hard to prognosticate, right? So there is nothing worse. There are two things that are bad. One is using a wimpy conventional treatment on someone that ultimately lives two years and then you see them back and you have to treat them again, which becomes increasingly difficult in the spine. Uh, and then, uh, or you, you, you do this beautiful SBRT plan. You take 10 days to make your plan, you deliver it. And then they like, you know, they die three weeks later from, from their disease. And, and that, you, you, that is absolutely not the right thing to do for those people. Um, I, I share with my patients that doctors are famously bad at prognosticating. There's all these great studies about how we're worse than a coin flip sometimes. And if you do a time to event and like, it's just, it's, it's, it's challenging. So I hope that my hope is that, um, you know, our peers are doing really interesting stuff. Uh, Julian Hong has, he's one of our, he's like kind of a growing kind of famous uh, uh, algorithm person that's helping, you know, kind of identify high-risk patients or maybe predict survival a little better. So I'm hoping that we are better at this 10 years from now than we are now, but it's something that I, like, I agree with you, that challenge of trying to select appropriate patients who can tolerate the downsides of this is really hard. Just to bring it back to another practical question, are, are any of you having, having trouble getting insurance approval in light of the RTOG study publication for spine SBRT? Because the last three patients I've tried to treat got denied. You know, I was just, yeah. just curious. So, yeah, I, I have a lot of issues with it from either insurers not covering it at all or only will cover it after a prior course of conventional palliative radiation. Um, or maybe if you have like a, quote, radio-resistant histology like renal cell carcinoma. But, yeah, it's kind of challenging in the private insurer world. I, I, only, I was laughing because... I actually teach our residents here that the, the only time that I ever want to hear someone say radio resistant is when they're talking to an insurer um, because it is, it is the most ridiculous term. I mean, it's like real, I mean, we yeah. all know that like, you know, you can't group an entire histology and say all patients yeah. are resistant there. And we've all seen the most ridiculous resistant, like, you know, like neuroendocrine style tumors that are supposed to melt away, but then they're like super resistance therapy, but I, that's how I actually get it. So what I do, I have a, a it's almost a form letter at this point because I do, Typically, I'm finding peer-to-peers to be very unproductive, so I hang up very quickly, and then I write the letter, and I we actually get a, a pretty high number approved on the letter. And in the letter, I cite all of the studies that have shown improvement in different outcomes for SBRT compared to conventional, and and I borrow very liberally. Like I, you know, I make crazy generalizations. I sometimes it's a stretch to include them, but hey, like you know, it's not like insurance is playing fair, right? So so I, I write these, and I'm happy to kind of 
share those around. I think Simo was even like making a, a bank of them for people to, we should do more of that, but yeah. I was just going to ask if Simo has gotten you to upload it to the Astro website. You should. <laughs> is it Astro? If, so Astro is supporting this officially now? Is that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, the library is on Astro. I, I haven't checked it recently. I honestly, we, we have very specific things that we get denied on here that I already have my own um, pre-made things. Um, but I, I haven't had trouble with spying at SPRG uh, either in Arizona where I was before or in Washington. Um, here it's a matter of like resources and uh, um, getting the studies done quickly enough. You know, they, they, these, these are big issues and eventually you just give up after if you can't get things scheduled and whatnot. So that becomes a issue, but it, it, it tends, it hasn't been an insurance issue. I'm surprised. That, so, so you're saying they want you to do an external beam course and then for repeat, that's what they fell allow. Yeah. I have, there's an insurer that require, you know, they only cover spine SBRT after a prior course of palliative radiation, which, you know, it's just kind of behind on the indication, the benefits of it. Yeah. I mean, long, you know, it's a, it's a highly conformal treatment. So I think they have a lot in their guidelines that like, you know, you can make the argument that because there's prior dose, you kind of need it. And, and some of like the earliest studies were sort of looking at re-irradiation. So I think that's kind of where it comes from, but yeah, of all the things that I fight with them on, I think this doesn't seem to be like something that's super common for me. Um, and we do increasing amount as well. Uh, one, one, one other comment is I think, um, I, I agree with you. We're like Memorial, right. Where it does take a long time, but there are programs that they can turn them around really quickly. Um, this is when I was a resident at UW in Seattle, they, there, someone visited and talked about how they have an emergency core compression SBRT program where they're able to turn it around same day. Um, and I was just talking to Simon Lowe. I really don't want to give specifics because I don't know the exact numbers he was giving me, but he was implying that they can turn them around in a day or two. Um, that kind of a thing. So, so it's something that, you know, I think could be done, but it's, you know, you have to, you can't put all of your eggs in every basket. So you have to kind of pick as a department, what you're going to focus on in terms of like optimizing. And um, it probably makes more sense to optimize like your breast radiotherapy workflow than like your spine SBRT one. So. I get, yeah. Right. No, I mean, I, I, we, we work with some Canadian dosimetrists um, as uh, supplements for our team and you know, they don't have authorization up there. They just, they do what they need to do without worrying about that. You know? And their bone mats almost always are VMAT, you know, like these are palliative bone mat cases and they do VMAT. They're like, well, why would you give extra dose um, if you don't need to? And that at the end of the day, like inverse planning for that, you could, you can do it in five fractions or less and call it SBRT, just, you know, immobilization, et cetera. And it, it, maybe you don't do one or two fractions, but you can do five fractions and feel comfortable, even if you don't have like the myelogram and that sort of setup. Um, and I think, you know, you're right. Like we should have our breast, uh, breast workflow and our lung workflow and all that stuff improved and streamlined. But this is something that's been on our like uh, quality meeting every week. We had just haven't gotten to it, but I was talking about bone SBRT, bone met SBRT and how we need to have uh, a, a workflow for that because you know, we have two positive studies for pain now, um, and the Anderson study, Canadian study, and, uh, these people appear to benefit. And so I think we, you know, we may want to consider that in the future or departments want to, may want to consider that in the future. Yeah, actually my, my perception, totally anecdotal. I don't have data, but 
but but my perception is actually that's what's growing rapidly in our department is actually non-spine bone SBRT. Um, we're seeing a ton of that now. Um, initially, people were doing 35 and 5 a lot, I think, from Sabre Comet. And then did I don't know if you all saw the consensus paper of the bone SBR, bone metastasis SBRT. We might have to, I guess, we'll probably have to move on. I don't know that we can talk about everything. But for me, you know, I don't know if you all are using a CTV for SBRT, which is unique. We, we, I typically don't do that for any SBRT cases. Um, they, they, they have some people in there doing that. And I, I thought that paper was hilarious because they have all these different ways to do bone non-spine bone SBRT and they call it a consensus paper. And like every way has like one or two people of the group that said that they do it. Like there's like no consensus. So it's kind of just experience, but I, I'm exploring that more and more in my patients as well, even outside the spine. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good way to treat, I think. All right. I think everyone's donated a lot of their time. So we should move on to our last study and to try to get wrapped up here. Yeah. So I just want to bring up a Chad Tang study from MD Anderson where it was a phase two study looking at uh, SBRT for patients with renal cell cancer with uh, one to one or two uh, oligometastases, and they treated with uh, either um, three to five fractions or 10 to 15, depending on location of the tumors. And it was phase two, and they were looking at essentially what, what I would call like systemic treatment-free survival, um, basically delaying additional treatment and just uh, just treating the Mets and then seeing how they do before starting any sort of systemic or immunotherapy. And they had 30 patients on study uh, that the interval that they found was 23 months. And I, I thought that was pretty good. I think most people did. It was presented at Astro. It's a smaller study. It's a smaller group of patients, but I think it's something we've seen before. And I think um, I've been practicing a little bit longer than uh, most of the group here, I think. But it's something that early in my career, it'd be, you know, I was in community in a smaller community in Maryland, and they would, they'd say, you know, this patient's been on so many different chemotherapies, and they just have a couple of spots left. Um, maybe you can zap them just to give them a chemo break. And we weren't really doing it with any evidence or anything like that, but it just sort of made sense uh, to do that. And that's at that time, we weren't doing SBOT in those cases, but we would do something like, you know, 60 and 20 or something like that. Um, with some VMAT and, and you'd get, you, you, you'd see these chemo holidays, basically they'd be free from systemic therapy and you just scan them every three months, see how they do. And then if something else pops up, maybe treat that if they're widespread disease, again, they get back on systemic therapy. And, um, I like the approach. I mean, I think, uh, chemotherapy is difficult on patients. We all know that, uh, SPRT when done well is not difficult on patients. Patients wonder if the beam was on. Uh, they don't get sick from treatment. They um, are done in three to five treatments, up to 15 if it's not in a great spot. And there's not much to it. Uh, the second part of it is that the financial toxicity of systemic treatment and the new agents are very, very expensive. Uh, you know, we, we all hear the numbers, but, you know, $80,000, $100,000 for six to 12 months of treatment. Um, well, we can do three to five fractions in the community for much, much lower than that. Um, and so I think, I think this is an exciting way to look at it. Um, and I like, I like the study and I think they're doing some interesting work with Oligomets at, at Anderson um, right now. Yeah, I think this is a really, really important study for our field, um, just as you were saying, to give people, especially from a, a cost effectiveness standpoint, from financial cost, 
clearly this is more cost-effective. You don't need a study to show that than indefinite systemic therapy. But also the cost of toxicity, um, as you were saying, so much better for patients. This is really a win-win when we find those, you know, niches where it works. So just as Matt was bringing up earlier with the CURB trial that was brought, uh, that was presented at Astro looking at um, FBRT for all areas of oligoprogression, it's remarkably successful in non-small cell lung cancer. Um, for whatever reason, not so much in breast. And we're not going to get into that now. I know we're, we're wrapping up the podcast. But um, but I think renal cell, as you point out with the study, is a really great space um, to use this approach. And we should really be advocating for it. We should really be at these multi-D um, you know, meetings and saying, hey, what about SBRT, you know, oftentimes our colleagues really don't understand how safe it can be in many locations. And I think that's one area that we really need to be vocal about. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I we we do have to be vocal about it. We have to we have to believe it. We have to put our beliefs out there. I uh, I had the pleasure of speaking with John Adler, who's a neurosurgeon who developed the CyberKnife and the new Zap machine, and I talked to him at Astro, and he. He says to me, you know, I believe in radiation more than you guys do. Um, and, you know, at times I believe it, you know, I, I, uh, there's times where I feel like we're not vocal enough about what we can do and the benefits we have. And, you know, when you get that consult about, you know, zap this patient, and then we can quickly get them on the systemic therapy, it's time to have the discussion. How about we zap that patient and just watch it? You know, maybe we don't have to do systemic therapy. Maybe we don't have to do immunotherapy. Let's, let's let's take control a little bit um, and be these people's oncologist rather than just the technician again. And um, I think, you know, I think it's a great opportunity. This, this type of data, it's a phase two. We need, we do need some phase three data um, and other disease sites as well. But I, I think this is an exciting um, foray into what we, we can do. Simple. I'm inspired. <laughs> I'm like ready. Let's, I'm going to go back to clinic. Nice tumor board. I think I, I think there's two things. Well, so I, I actually would say that I am also inspired, but maybe a little more cautiously because we, as as you know, as Laura just mentioned, we saw a, a disease site where there wasn't a benefit, right? So I think it, we really are going to need. I guess what I would say is is there should be no question that there should be very strong support for studies like this because we're really going to need to sort of like suss this out in a very detailed way for each disease site and kind of patient status and so forth to really know. Well, one question I had to ask is, do you, so do you all feel like there, there more than other disease sites, there's a disconnect between SBRT literature and like the awareness of the results of these studies for people who treat renal cell carcinoma? Because I, you know, we, it came up uh, again, we, we, we referenced Twitter like a thousand times in this, uh, you know, in all of our podcasts, but, but it, you know, it came up where I think it's, you know, it's kind of conspicuously absent in the NCCN. This is really just more radiating the primary, um, uh, but there's, there's really good prospective data for that. And like, rarely people talk about it. And then just from like my own life, I went over uh, as a, a, just, I was more of the medical director role, but I brought over one of our new faculty um, that's treating GU up at that satellite to try to kind of talk and have a better relationship with the urologists that treat up there. Um, and and it, same thing, very collaborative relationship, super, super cohesive. But the urologist literally said to me, is there any data for SBRTing a, a, a renal cell primary? And I was like, what do you mean? Is there any data? There's a, there's a ton of really good data. And, and he just 
just wasn't aware of it. It's just, you know, and this was not a confrontational conversation. He was genuinely asking because they have patients where they would prefer not to do the surgery. So they're like looking for alternatives. And, and I think it just surprises me a lot with renal cells specifically. I don't know if you all feel that way or if it's just me. It can be just me. I won't be embarrassed. You can say something. Well, it kind of makes me think back to what you said earlier, you know, kind of jokingly about the radio, radio resistant histology. And I've honestly still heard people say that um, from medical oncology standpoint is I think there's still this assumption that they learned this in residency and that maybe there's no role for it. If the, if renal cell doesn't, doesn't in their mind respond well to radiation. And so it's kind of hard to get your foot in that door without people being aware of the, of the newer data. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I mean, it's part, there, there, there's like a little bit of a side issue is this, maybe it starts in the academic center because you guys are very busy and I get it, but it's this idea like an inpatient consult is more work or additional a burden rather than an opportunity to get something. Cause in the community, like we, we want consults. We want consults. We don't care if we're going to treat them or not. I, I want to see that patient. I want my hands on it. I want my name on that chart um, because that's going to be good for the patient and it's going to be good for the business. And uh, I think like when you're overworked as a resident and you start your job, you're just like, man, like God, inpatients, another consult. I don't like, why are they sending me this patient? That's the worst statement for a radiation oncologist to say, you should be very happy. You're getting sent a patient, even if there's no indication for treatment, because that means they want your opinion. Um, and we, we, we have this issue at times where we, we, we might even call them and say, you know, you really don't need to send that patient. And that's not good practice. That's not good business. Um, and I think like we, again, I think we have to, we have to push harder and advocate for ourselves and really get after it. Yeah. I mean, I think it, this is, uh, it, so we should reference our, uh, advice podcast for new attendings. That was, that was talked about quite a bit, super good advice, I think, but it's like, I mean, really man, median survival, progression free survival of 22 months. I mean, you have to, you know, one caveat is it's longer than their actual follow-up. So you always have to like, kind of be a little careful because it's a model, right? <laughs> but it's not like these yeah. people are going to fall off a cliff at 17 months and then they're going to have horrible progression free survival in actuality at 22, but that's a long time. That's like two years. It's crazy. I mean, it's, it yeah. just seems like, um, if I, again, I don't go to GU tumor board, but I would be very comfortable bringing this up frequently because it is a, um, the results are, are very compelling. So I think it's something that is a, is a great trial to, to know about. We'll just have to make sure people know about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so I think, um, we are like way over what we originally planned. So I really appreciate everybody's time. This was so much fun. It's been a great year for research. I know that <laughs> we're, we're lamenting that there's not, New England Journal papers for radiation kind of prior to, or maybe on the show, I've lost track at this point, but, uh, but I think that there's some really exciting studies coming out. And I personally do, I'm excited for the future. I think there's, uh, there's going to be a really cool evolution of the way radiation, radiation is used. And I think it's going to really do uh, well for patients. Um, any final thoughts from people? Mm. We're all ready for 2022. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we're all ready for it. So I hope everyone has a really happy holiday. Thank you all very much. Thank you to Quadshot. Uh, I cannot wait to kind of see what you all are doing with this. At some point, we're going to have to bring you back and hear about the future of your effort. It's it's super great. Uh, everyone loves it. So please keep up the strong work. And thanks for coming out for this uh, podcast tonight. It was really a lot of fun. So, thank yeah. you.
Yeah, you guys. Enjoyed it. Happy Thank holidays. You. Yeah. Happy holidays. <laughs> See you Great later. Discussion. Happy holidays, everyone.